Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the strength that it gives to us and the, um, the way that it strengthens our faith, the way that it teaches us and makes us humble and um, shows us what our work to do is and, and helps us with it. Help us, Father, this morning to benefit from it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we are in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 to 25, 17 to 25. And before we jump in, I want to uh, remind us of two things that we have to understand as we come to 1 Timothy. These are the two things I've said over and over again, but it's important, so I'm going to say them again. Uh, first of all, remember this letter is all in the context of bad teachers in the church of Ephesus, right? That is like the main thing in the background of this. Almost everything, you could say everything, has to do with that somehow. Um, and so there are elders and teachers in the church, they're teaching strange doctrines, they're teaching things, they're paying attention to myths and endless genealogies that give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering of the work of God which is by faith. Remember all that back from chapter one? Um, They've strayed away from love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They've turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. Remember that? He says, um, he actually excommunicates two of these elders by name. In chapter one, verses 18 and 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, uh, some of these have have rejected faith and a good conscience and have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. These, he's talking about elders in the church. Then he says, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That's church discipline. That's, that's excommunication, right? He warns us, warns Timothy about their teaching back in chapter four. Remember the kinds of things they're teaching, right? Chapter four, verse one, but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Falling away from the faith is being an apostate. They're not Christians, right? Even though they might claim to be. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. We're not talking about little, you know, things that we can agree to disagree these are doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. They can't feel anything anymore in their conscience. And then he gets specific. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So there's this weird ascetic kind of, uh, you know, no marriage, no foods, no pleasure. That's one element of their teaching. He's going to say in chapter six, which we'll get to very soon, he's gonna say this, listen. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he Remember, he's describing actual people in the church now. He is conceited and understands nothing. 
but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. We'll get to that soon, but that's intense, right? This reality of bad, false shepherds, wolves, is all over the place in 1 Timothy. That is why the Apostle Paul left Timothy in Ephesus in the first place, remember? His job is to what? Is to shut these men down. It's to stop them from teaching these things. It's to deal with them, it's to discipline them, and it's to clean up the mess by putting in new elders. That's why we have that section in chapter three about the qualifications for elders. Someone's gotta take their place. We need the right kind of men teaching, not those men, but new men. All right? The second theme that goes through 1 Timothy is that the church must live in such a way that when outsiders or unbelievers, people who are outside the church, look in at us, they have no excuse to dishonor God. They have no excuse to dishonor God, right? He must have, the new elders must have a good reputation with those outside the church, lest they fall into reproach. Um, The widows we looked at last week, The younger widows, he wants them to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. He's gonna say in chapter six, verse one, next week, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Over and over and over again, that's very much in the forefront of his mind. And so it should be in the forefront of our mind. You all with me? We, what we do and how we speak, how we engage with people, how we live our lives, even in private, has, has a huge bearing on the honor and glory of Jesus Christ in the public eye. It does matter. Now we have to have God's standards for that, not man's, but it matters. All right. Now, all of that is here um, in the background of this passage. Let's look at it, 1 Timothy 5, 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise 
cannot be concealed. All right, so think about this. With all of this mess of dealing with sinful, wolvish shepherds, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing, the apostle Paul tells Timothy and the church that is listening in how to treat the good elders and pastors. So you have all this background of all this bad stuff happening, but he wants to remind them, no, no, yes, but there are good ones, and here's how you're to treat them. The elders, that's the beginning. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now, there are several things to see here. First, look at this word honor again. It's the same word we had last week about uh, widows. Honor widows who are widows indeed. This is the same word. As we saw last week, that word certainly means to regard someone with respect, right? To give them high regard, to regard them with respect. But it also, in many contexts, like last week, means more than that. We saw last week, in the context of the true widows, honor includes what? Helping them financially, right? It means helping them financially. We saw that last week with widows. And the same thing is true here in verse 17. Look at the reason for giving the command, right? Elders who rule well to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching for, so here's the reason. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So now we know what a big part of what he's talking about is money. Do you see that? Wages. Ox food, right? So at least in part, we're talking about money. But he says the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So what is double honor? Well, I believe it means respect and high regard. So there's that honor in the sense that we all understand honor and financial support. So you could say, you can think of it as honor, both honor and honorarium. You know what an honorarium is? It's money you pay somebody to do something. Um, So both honor and honorarium, double honor. Now who is to receive this double honor? Well, the elders who rule well. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And that's the second thing to notice here. There is a distinction among the elders. Now, what do all elders do according to this this sentence here? What do all elders do? Rule. All of them rule. That's what it means to be an elder. Some rule well. You see that? (laughs) But only some work hard at preaching and teaching. And they are the elders who are especially worthy of double honor. That's what he's saying. Now, this passage is one place in the Bible that eventually led to a more fully developed practice of having a distinction between what can be called ruling elders and teaching elders or ministers or pastors, okay? In other words, here in 1 Timothy 5, there's an apparent bifurcation of rule. Uh, All elders rule. That's what it means to be an elder. But some elders are to work hard at preaching and teaching. 
This is why historically churches have made a distinction between ruling elders and what? Teaching elders, okay? We have the same distinction, but with slightly different terminology. So in, the, in, the, in, in like many modern American um, reformed or Presbyterian denominations like the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, they, they have that distinction, ruling elder, teaching elder. Uh, ruling elders are men who, uh, typically that's not their main job. They're not being paid for it. Teaching elders are men who go to seminary, they're trained, they devote their lives to this, and they teach and preach and administer the sacraments. But they ruled as well. Now let me show you something. This is um, some, some gripping reading here if you haven't read this. You should read it. It's up online. I'm, I'm kind of serious. You actually should read it. This is the Evangel Presbytery, the presbytery that was newly formed just a little while ago that we were a charter member of, and many in our church, well, Brian and Jake and others, had a huge hand in writing, um, perfecting this document, which is the Book of Church Order. The book, the, the, what we started with was something very old. It goes back to the 20s, wasn't it? But even that went way back before. That was building on something that came before it. So this is a long line of uh, pastors and elders thinking about this stuff. And so this is what governs our our denomination and therefore governs us. And this is in chapter eight, um, paragraph two, all right? The ordinary and perpetual officers in the church are pastors or ministers of the word, so those are synonymous, right? Pastors or ministers of the word, same office, who are commissioned to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments, Right, Ruling elders, whose office is to have the government and spiritual oversight of the church, and deacons, whose office is to receive and administer the offerings of the people, and in accordance with the scripture, these offices are open to men only. All right, So that is a little bit different than what the PCA does. The terminology is a little different, but the function is the same. We have pastors or ministers of the word on the one hand, and they are to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments, and then we have ruling elders who are to govern and oversee the church. Now that twofold distinction of office and function, all right, comes from the Old Testament. Comes from the Old Testament. And runs right through the book of Acts and then into the rest of the New Testament and therefore into our day. Now this is technical, but important for us to understand, all right? Here's, let me show you this. I thought I'd throw some color in to wake us up. All right, this is the continuity of offices, okay? What I said is, it, this distinction between a difference between a pastor or a minister and a ruling elder, that distinction actually comes from the Old Testament. We see it in the book of Acts and it runs right into our day through the New Testament. So here you have the Old Testament, the book of Acts and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have two offices. You have Levites who are priests and their job is to teach. One of their many jobs is to teach 
and you could say, administer the sacraments, right? I mean, they're the ones who are in the temple, they are handling the sacrifices, all that has been replaced now, of course, by the work of Christ and done away with, but that was their work, in the temple, full-time, they didn't have jobs other than that. That's what they did. And they, and they taught the people. You see that all through the prophets and the historical books too. Okay, they're not just in the temple, they are teaching. So you have teachers and sacrament administrators, the Levites, Levites who are the priests. Then you have the elders. And the elders are those who are we, we always see this language about ruling in the gate, right? They are making decisions. They are settling disputes. They are governing the people. Adjudicating conflict, absolutely. You always see that distinction throughout the Old Testament. You all with me, right? Then you come into the book of Acts and you see these elders. You'll see that the elders run all the way through all three time frames, you could say. The elders, the ruling elders, and the ruling elders. You see this in the book of Acts. In Acts 15, remember when we studied Acts 15 a while ago? And you had these decisions that were being made. They had a council in Jerusalem, and they called together who? The apostles and the elders. Well, the apostles, during the time of the apostles, in the early, you know, generation of the church, they took on the role of the teaching and the administrating, administering of the sacraments, you could, you could argue. Um, but then there are still these ruling elders. And so in Acts 15, they're together deliberating and making decisions and writing documents, right? And then you move into the New Testament where we see, like in our passage today, this distinction, you still have ruling elders and you still have this other class of officer that is their main job is to teach and also to administer the sacraments. So that is, that's where we get this, all right? The, the document that I read to you from Evangel, that's where we get it. This is not something novel. This is not something that we made up. This is not something that's foreign to the whole Bible, this is just what we see. This is the pattern. Um, and so there are three offices in the church. All right, now a lot of Baptists, uh, or even Reformed Baptists, and that was my background before I came here. Um, many of you, that's your background. They wanna see only two offices. They wanna see that all elders, there is no distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders. All elders are pastors, all, all pastors are elders, period. No distinction, no even kind of difference in role. I disagree with that. I actually think there are four offices. The fourth would be a teacher or a doctor. That was Calvin's view. But hey. So there we are. Does that make sense? So that's, that's the background, I think, for helping us understand this passage. Any questions about that before we move on from that? Yes, David. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a reformed, reformed Baptist. Yes, one could possibly say. Yes. Where, where do deacons fit? Where do they go? 
Well, there, that's not the point of this chart. Deacons. Um, well, that's not the point of this chart. This chart is to show the difference between ministers and ruling elders. There are three offices. Deacon is the other office. You see the, 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 the beginning of the office of deacon in Acts 6, right? Okay. Everyone all right? Good? All right. So if we add deacons to that list of offices, here's what we see, right? The deacons are charged with physical needs of the congregation and with the care of the poor, and they answer to the elders. The bulk of the session, we call the, the gathering, the, the meeting, the body that is both the elders and the pastors together, that, that's Presbyterian speak, is the session, all right? So that the bulk of the session is made up of ruling elders. That's true in our church. They were ordained to the rule of the church. They were not ordained to the ministry. The rest of the session is made up of ministers and or teachers or pastors. And some make the case for another office of teacher, as I said. Uh, But the minister is responsible for ministry, teaching, and rule. The teacher is responsible for teaching and rule. The ruler is responsible for rule. Okay, that's how it would break down. Okay, now let's look more closely at the scriptural support for this command. All right, the elders who rule well to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work at teaching and preaching. He's quoting from two places. Uh, The first, we know from the New American Standard, which is what we use here, whenever you see in the New Testament something that looks like it's yelling at you, It's, it's, it's yelling at you, you know, by what it's actually telling us is this is a direct quote from the Old Testament, okay? So that is from Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, exact quote. But here's the interesting thing. This next quote is not in all caps, so where is that coming from? Hmm, Luke. But look what he says. For the scripture says... Then he quotes from the Old Testament, then he quotes from the the gospel, what we know is the gospel of Luke. That's interesting. Remember, Luke was his companion, and he most likely got this from Luke's gospel that he was writing or had just written or something, and he's quoting it and he's calling it scripture. That's interesting. Here's what Luke 10 says. So there's Deuteronomy, here's Luke. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you for, here's the quote, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Exact quote. And so the Old Testament, our Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul all agree. All right, no surprise. Of course they do. 
that there is a certain group of men who are normally to be supported by the church for their work in the church. All right? Another place where the Apostle Paul opens that up more at length, 1 Corinthians 9. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? He's talking about himself and his fellow apostles. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Again, Deuteronomy. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the, the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So who's he talking about there? The Levites, the priests. And he is comparing himself and his work with their work. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So here's the principle that comes from the Old Testament priesthood straight into the New Testament ministry. All right, as we see all through the New Testament, Men must work in order to produce income, right? That's, that's the norm. Men must work to produce income, growing crops, tending livestock, making and building things. Our Lord Jesus himself was a builder and the apostle Paul made tents, right? The Old Testament priests did not work to produce income. They didn't even have their own land. And so the people supported them by their tithes and offerings. The New Testament ministers or pastors also do not normally work to produce income. That's not the norm. It happens sometimes it's not the norm. So the church supports them with their tithes and offerings. That's the parallel and that's the standard. It's exactly like the priests and the Levites in the Old Testament. They made their living from the temple. And the Apostle Paul says... The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And he's thinking of Luke 10. Okay, now, we all, that seemed, that's plain, isn't it? Okay, any thoughts before we move on? So he's saying, okay, there are bad elders, yes, but there are good elders, and you need to treat those good elders, especially the the ones who make their living, the pastors, their ministers, at preaching and teaching, they work hard at it, give them double honor. So honor them personally, but pay them. That's what I think he's saying. All right. Now, he moves on in verses 19 to 22 to tell Timothy 
how to handle accusations against elders and pastors in the church. Now remember the context. There are accusations against pastors and elders in the church. Um, he has to do this because they're in fact sending elders and pastors. How should Timothy handle them? Um, we have sending elders and pastors. You know, that's what we do. You understand, we're sinners. How, how do we get handled? Well, he, he gives some instruction. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and, all, and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So there's a basic principle of, accept, of acceptable evidence. It's amazing how much um, in the government of the church the apostles are always going back to the Old Testament, just like we saw about the money and the officers. Now he's gonna talk about discipline and there's a basic standard of God's just standard for discipline and for witnesses and for evidence that comes straight from the Old Testament, right into the New Testament. This is from the law of God, Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. You understand how that works? That's, there's a principle that it is better to let a guilty man go free than it is to convict an innocent man. If an innocent man, if a guilty man goes free, Will he be judged? Yes, because God, God is the judge of all the earth. And that man will be judged one way or another, at some point or another, right? There are no, guilty men actually never go free, ultimately. But when it comes to human justice, it is always better to let a guilty man go free than it is to convict an innocent man. And so the standard is, any kind of charge has to be brought by more than just one witness. Because anyone can say anything about anybody, anytime. You know, Frank, Frank stole my, you know. Well, did anyone else see that? No. Do you have any proof? No. But he did it. Well, send him to jail. That does not fair. That's not just, right? So this basic biblical principle of multiple witnesses comes straight over from God's law right into the practice of church discipline and of course into our civil codes as well. And that's only right, that's just, that comes from God, comes from God's law. That same principle applies whether or not the alleged offender is a church officer or a church member, that same principle applies. Look at Matthew 18, this is the place where we go to learn about church discipline. Um, mainly, there's some others, but here's like the place we have to start. Look what it says. This is the Lord Jesus talking. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. That's private, 
personal sin, okay? So-and-so sinned against me privately and personally, and so it's my duty to go and rebuke him and call him to repentance, one-on-one. There's your two witnesses, right? You know what you did, and I know what you did, and so we're gonna talk about it, okay? But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that, again, quote from the Old Testament, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So Jesus is quoting now from Deuteronomy. Two or three witnesses. Now, those two or three witnesses didn't see the original offense. It's between you and your brother alone at first, and then, okay, that didn't work, I'm gonna bring some men with me, and they're gonna witness my second attempt. And then thereby they become witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Paul is telling Timothy to follow basically the same practice that Jesus himself commanded and that God's law prescribed, right? Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And then he instructs Timothy about how to proceed once two or three witnesses come forth and the man is found guilty. Now this could be doctrine or it could be life. You can sin with your doctrine. We see that all through 1 Timothy, especially a teacher. So what do you do? Well, you've received the accusation because there are two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, which means they don't repent, they refuse to listen to you, what do you do with them? Well, you rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And so he commands a public rebuke of elders. Do you see that? A public rebuke of elders. Remember, those who teach or what? They're liable to what? A stricter standard. Don't, don't, uh, don't let many of you, James says, be teachers, right? Because those who teach will have a harsher judgment. Well, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. Now, we can obey this either by rebuking an elder in the presence of all the other elders, because it's ambiguous who the all is here, or rebuking an elder in the presence of the whole congregation. It could mean either. And so I believe that the elders and the pastors of a church must make a decision on a case-by-case basis. We've done both. We have done exactly this process on several occasions, right? In some cases, we've rebuked elders in the presence of all the other pastors and elders, And in some cases, we've rebuked an elder in the presence of the whole congregation. And we have to decide for the the health of the congregation and for the good of that man and for everyone who's watching and listening, we have to decide which is the best. What is the purpose of this public rebuke? It's not to humiliate the sinning elder, but it's what? It's to protect everyone. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. 
Rest of the elders and pastors, yeah. Rest of the congregation, depends on the nature of the situation. Again, church, well, church discipline always has that as part of the, of the reason. Protect the church. Protect the purity and the peace of the church. And then the Apostle Paul lays a solemn charge on Timothy because he knows how things go, right? It's very easy to be, uh, to be easy on one another as elders and pastors. Cut each other some slack, you know? I know what you're going through, you know. What does he say? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels, all right? That's about as heavy as you can get. Hmm? Yeah. What happens, you know, historically is that everybody says, well, we'll cover up the sin yeah. to save the image. Yeah. We'll co- this is what happens over and over again. We'll cover the sin of the elders and pastors to protect the, uh, the, uh, the, the image of the church, exactly opposite of what should be done, right? And of course, then no one's fearful of sinning either. And so the cancer grows and rots and rots and rots. So look, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and the Christ Jesus and of his cho- uh, chosen angels, this is a big deal, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Doesn't matter if it's your son. Doesn't matter if it's your father. Doesn't matter if it's your brother. Doesn't matter if, you know, none of that matters. What matters is the peace and purity of the church and the honor of Christ. So all of these principles have to be held to and practiced without partiality and he calls down the judgment of God. Do you see that? Big deal. Then he warns us, Timothy, not to be hasty when we ordain officers in the church. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, that means ordain them, and thereby share responsibility responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. All right, what happens if the elders and pastors ordain a man who is not qualified to be an officer? If that man sins as an officer, either in his life or his doctrine, then we who ordained him share responsibility for their sins if we did it hastily. You can't always catch everything. That's not the point. But if, if, they're putting, if, if, if us putting them into office was hasty, then we share their sins. Heavy, heavy weight for us to carry. Now in verse 23, almost done, the apostle Paul throws in a very personal word to Timothy and it seems kind of strange and out of place, Right? No longer drink wine exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. I'm sorry, no longer drink water exclusively, (laughs) but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, why is he saying this? So it seems like, why would he say that here? It seems like Timothy is being overly scrupulous in light of what Paul has said about church officers not being addicted to wine. He's like, okay, no wine. Or maybe Timothy has been even slightly... uh, 
influenced by the culture of the false teachers who advocate abstaining from foods that God created to be enjoyed by those who believe and know the truth. No wine. Whatever's going on, Paul urges Timothy not just to drink water, but to drink some wine for his frequent ailments. There's a lesson we need to learn here. Timothy had frequent ailments. <laughs> right? So did he not have enough faith to be healed? Hello? You all hear me, right? Poor Timothy. Oh yeah, he's, he's, he's Paul's protege, pastor of church in Ephesus, his right-hand man, but he doesn't have enough faith to be healed. So he has to take medicine. Okay, well that's stupid. All right. Um, God doesn't heal all of our diseases. And we can't demand that. And then Paul tells Timothy to drink wine medicinally for those frequent ailments. So if you take medicine, does that mean you don't trust God? Okay, no. So that's, that's important. This is the word of the Lord, and it's eternally true. And this is for our instruction. Even the little personal line to Timothy to, to drink some wine. Now, here's the end. The Apostle Paul comes back to this to the sins of elders, and he says this, the sins of some men are quite evident, <laughs> right? Going before them to judgment. So like your reputation precedes you, right? That's what that, that's what that means. Your, some men, their sins are very evident, and they're easy to see, and everybody sees them, and they show up even before the man does. But others, for others, their sins follow after. So they're, they're, they're more hidden. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. In other words, here's the point, take your time. Take your time. Examine potential officers carefully, dig around in their lives, pay attention to their families, watch what goes on beneath the surface and between the lines, and take your time because maybe you just need to wait a little bit for their sins to catch up, and then you'll see them, if you're looking. Does that make sense? The health and the well-being of the church is at stake with our officers. The glory and reputation of Christ are at stake. And so we need to be done, one last word. If you are a man who aspires to church office, how would this be applied to you? Be patient. Be patient. Be willing to be examined. Be willing to be scrutinized. Be willing to have other godly men dig around in your life and ask questions, and poke and prod and think and wait. Let the church see you. Be transparent. Let the church and the elders and pastors poke around and observe. The health of the church is at stake. Not your ego. Not your wonderful plan for your life. All right? All right, let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your word, the way it's so helpful and practical and clear.
And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to obey it. And everything you've commanded us to do here, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.